From the Afro Blush blog, this is Meet the Maker, a conversation with Africa's creatives, the innovators, designers, and thought leaders within the African diaspora, and the ideas behind the initiatives they've built. I'm Louisa Kiwana. In today's show, I have Ni Aikwe Parks, poet, writer, and literary creative. Ni, I met you what feels like yesterday, but was probably about three, four years ago now, um, and... Two and a half. Oh, really? Yeah. It's not that long. I feel like it was that long ago. Yeah. Maybe we've both grown a lot in that time. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Um, but I remember when I first met you, you took the stage, and you, whether it was a poem or some kind of spoken word, I'm not sure, and I'm hoping that you tell me a little bit about maybe the differences between the two but I remember you gave a talk about I think primarily the underlying point was not seeing Africa and Africans as a homogenous being and it was a reminder to a very white audience predominantly how they should engage their perspectives when wanting to delve in pursue commercial opportunities in Africa I remember being really moved by what you said and also asking myself, I don't know how I would have articulated what you had said in a normal way, like I'm talking to somebody now, right? right. And that was probably the inception of my appreciation for poetry as a means mm. of communication, sometimes in a way that normal talking just won't do. Right. Um, and, and actually, when I spoke, it, it wasn't a poem. I oh. was actually just speaking to them. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> so it's maybe just the way you speak. Yes. Um, because that particular platform where I met you, I was speaking to them as a consumer consultant because mm -hmm. I, I occasionally, because I came from the FMCG world, so I used to work in, in, in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. And so I was speaking to them as somebody who understands Africa, having traveled around Africa, but also knew the corporate world, mm -hmm. to talk to them about how you, you recognize your prejudices, the ones that you, you're not even aware of when you're working. So, you know, there are a lot of perspectives that are accepted as normal, which actually, when you look at them, are very Eurocentric. And that cuts across everything from, you know, the way that water is marketed to the way shampoo is marketed to the way that books are marketed to the way that books are written about to the way even that text is formatted within books. All of these things are affected by those perspectives. And I guess being aware of both worlds allows you to talk to people with the kind of delicacy that takes into account both sides, yeah. knowing that there is a great advantage to having grown up in Africa as well, because it means that you, depending on where you grew up, because South Africa is a different case from Ghana, from Zimbabwe, from Kenya. Um, but I grew up in Ghana, um, and I grew up with my news readers being black, my pilots being black, my president being black, and actually didn't think of them as black. I mean, black is a, is a that notion came when I returned to England um, to to go to university. Yeah. So there was never ever, ever any doubt in my mind that anything I wanted to do, I could do, and that I was a valid and expansive and worthy person mm -hmm. from when I was little. So. It allows me to, to have some distance and not to approach some of these spaces with anger, simply because I'm quite confident who, in who I am. You're not resentful about how things are. It doesn't affect you personally and how you view yourself. Yes. But you are aware of the situation kind of as it stands. And very keen to correct it yeah. whenever I can. <laughs> so what are the areas that you think are key in taking the first steps to having maybe a more progressive outlook? I'll give you an example. I have the pleasure of working for different brands that have an awareness that they need to be more reflective of people from all walks of life. Yes. Um, and whilst the term diversity has been very fashionable this year and last, um, there are a few companies that are doing, I suppose, 
the best that they can with the limitations that they have mm-hmm. um, to look at diversity as something actually that they need to address or inclusivity as something that they need to address, right. um, not just something that they can't be seen to not addressing. So <laughs> what... Good distinction, yes. So um, what do you think are some of the initial steps? Because I think for a lot of people um, that I work with, listening to this podcast um, and hopefully, you know, reading some of the articles that I'll hopefully be sharing about this topic. Where do you start? Because it's such, it's a big thing. It's a big problem. It's a big topic. It can be overwhelming and it can be intimidating, particularly if you're not black or if you're not African. What's a good, what and where is a good place to start? (laughs) Um, You know, when I used to study science anytime something got confusing they would say start from first principles and it's the same thing when you meet someone you say what's your name you listen to how they say it and you try to say it the same way you don't read the name and pronounce it the way that you would pronounce it if you if you start from that principle everything can can be rejigged every perspective can be looked at again mm-hmm. um i remember going down the stairs in a tube station with my daughter and they had two levels of handrails and she said, Daddy, they should put one in the middle because that would be ideal for me. Now, the, the people designing it probably never thought that way. They just thought, hey, we can have low handrails. But then there's always that in between. So that's the thing. You can't please everyone. So where, where is the space where at least there's some kind of benefit mm. and people aren't being disadvantaged too much? But I think ultimately what you need to do with anything that you're dealing with is to look at the people that you're trying to reach and see how many of them um, you can cover depending on the perspectives you take. Um, It's the same thing with storytelling. You have to decide who's the best person to tell the story who can see as much of the scene as possible. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, if an ant tells a story, they won't see what's happening from above. If a crow tells a story, they might be able to see more. Um, If an owl tells a story because it's got keener vision, it will see the ant too. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, it's... that's that's what it is. It's yeah. it's about being it's humility actually. That's what it is. And unfortunately, because of the way the world is constructed and the fact that the the West and its ideas are dominant, um a lot of people who grew up in the Western world don't have the humility to consider the other perspective. Mm. And it's that lack of humility that creates the problem in addressing diversity because they feel like it's addressed. Yeah. What are you complaining about? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And um I wanted to ask about your daughter. Yes. Um, was she born in Ghana? Or no, she, she was born, born here? here. She was born here. She was born okay. here. So, um, interestingly, we uh, are running a two-part series. We had one episode last week and recording the next next week about third culture kids. Yes. So, um, children that have been either born or brought up in a different place to either their passport or where their parents originally come from. Right. Um, so, I imagine that your daughter will grow up having... A, um, a symphony of different cultural experiences Certainly. and perspectives. And I think that um, as a third culture kid and millennial myself, it equips you with certain skills in life and certain advantages and enables you to to have a perspective that is quite unique. But then also it can be quite confusing. So I was talking about the fact that as a Ugandan, I don't feel at home when I'm Uganda. Right. Um, and I feel very British when I'm there. I don't want to. Yeah. But it's but just, that's it is what, what it is. is. Yeah. yeah. And then also here, I don't feel very British. I feel Ugandan. But then, you know, that's just because of um, the comparison and yes. the contrast. So um, it was interesting to me how you talked about also acknowledging your own blackness when you, when you came here. Um, and what are your expectations for your own daughter kind mm. of growing up um, in this kind of cross-cultural um, mix? Mix. Yeah. Well, I mean, language is important. I mean, accepting the, the tag of black is a purely practical thing because that's the language here. Mm. In Ghana, it doesn't even come up. But over here, to, to move through the system. And then you have to understand that it's, it's language is abstract. Yes, it can you know, depend on how it's used. It can be painful. But at the same time, you can keep a perspective that says this is abstract. And it's the same thing with, with my daughter. I'm very keen to explain things to her in terms of perspectives, in terms of language. I make sure she understands that she has a different language. She has other languages she can tap into when she wants to think about things. 
But one of the most important things I teach her is, is etymology, is the origins of words and the origins of things. So she's very analytical. Right. And that means that um, things don't affect her so badly because she will analyze. And I think that's probably the best thing that I can give her. Um, she also started school in Ghana. Mm-hmm. So um, she understands what school is like in a different place. And, and, and there's a contrast. But if, if you see the way she conducts herself in school, you can tell that she knows that there are other ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's you know, all millennials or, or people who grew up in a mix of cultures are great shapeshifters. And that's what will give them the keys to the future because they have the ability to understand both sides and to, to, to mediate between both sides. Yeah. Um, I'm quite sure that the job you do, you're uniquely qualified for because you have this kind of dual experience. Yeah, and yeah. so there's, there's also that thing of equipping you know, our children with the knowledge that actually the things that they might be teased for in school are actual, actual gifts and mm. benefits that they will be able to leverage when they're older. In yeah. school, yes, people might tease you, but later on, you know, you'll be giving them jobs. Yeah, <laughs> very true. As a poet, you're a lyricist. Yes. You, your, um, your job is to master and to use words uh, to your advantage and to achieve a certain objective with the use of words. Certainly. Um, how have you used words to get your way in life and to position yourself? Because I think that actually sometimes words and the use of words and understanding where they come from, we take for granted hugely. Yes. Um, I know I do. So what are the ways in which you have used, I suppose, your unique offering in life mm. to, to, to put you in an advantage? Well, um, again, I, I think it's the use of words it comes down to breaking things into, into units, um, but also a sen- having a sensitivity to other people. I think the primary gift, at least for me as a writer, is not necessarily the words the vocabulary Mm. it's it's the fact that i'm sensitive i am sensitive to what's around me i'm sensitive to to people's feelings and um and that's what gives you the ability to juxtapose the words in a particular way we i mean there are people who have greater vocabulary than i do but it's about how you put the words together but it's also being acutely aware because of a habit of reading which actually feeds into this of the power of words and how they can shape things. Mm-hmm. I've recently completed a, a book of tales from Africa for Penguin. And in the book, while it was being edited, you know, sometimes the editor would say, oh, um, this name is very long. Do you want to include an explanation as to why these names are so long? Mm. And, you know, so my way of responding to that, which we'll talk, you can describe as my way of getting um, my way with words is to write back to her to say, well, um, I have no objection to explaining why those names are so long. As long as when I use the word John, you'll allow me to explain why it's so short. <laughs> um, and, you know, you don't get a comeback because yeah. actually what that does is it exposes the bias, mm. which the, the editor is not, the copy editor is not aware of, which is to say that our names are normal, other names are strange. Yeah. And that's the fundamental thing. That's the fundamental. Um, it's a constant attack. It's a constant attack. It's not visible, but it's a constant attack on people who do not fit what is considered the center in the West. Yeah. And that means that people are under psychological attack all the time because these things are there. Yeah. And these things start in children's books because the moment I do that, somebody who has a name like that mm-hmm. is going to feel, why does my name have to be explained? Yes. If somebody is from a polygamous family and you're explaining polygamy in a book again it makes him feel why is it being explained um if you know somebody's reading a book and they say animals are endangered in africa um and it's so sad we need to do something about it without the context of the fact that the reason they're endangered was because europeans went to hunt them then people european kids are going to read this and have this savior mentality mm-hmm. from the age of five, six, when they read these books, that when we grow up, we're going to go and fix that stuff in Africa yeah. without the acknowledgement that actually it was broken by somebody else. Yeah. So it's really important that we understand the contexts of all the information that passes by. And so with me knowing that I don't let anything slip right from that level when I'm writing for that age, yeah. 
and I'm being edited, I make sure that the context is put there, that, you know, all these biases don't come in because it's actually when it forms, it forms very early. Yeah. And I think uh, you're right. They're things that are so easily overlooked, but are so... um, so they're absorbed in mass, yeah. you know, and they, they, they frame our perspectives of what's happening around in, in yeah. the world hugely. I um, mean, you probably don't even realize until you start, until you get challenged yes. on something. And then I mean, the stories are endless. You know, you, you look at how um, in schools they consider children's languages. When a child speaks French, they're like, oh, wow. If they speak Gikuyu, like, what's that? All of that. So, you know, it's telling people not to be proud. I mean, the, and, and then people don't even understand the complexity of the world. You know, um, I know of a Trinidadian kid who um, was drawing in class and drew his mother and his, his father. And his father is dark. And his, father, his, his teacher was trying to cor- correct him because he's, he's a very pale kid. He mm-hmm. looks white. And he said, that's my father. You know, people don't understand that mixed race people can have very pale kids. Yeah. And but why is a teacher trying to correct a child's correct interpretation? A child's interpretation. Yeah. You know, so that's killing creativity even at that age. Yeah, um, yeah. And so for me, I think the biggest battle for all of us in culture, whether we're at home or here in the West, is we need more people at the gatekeeper level. So that we can moderate and 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 mediate these conversations, and that's why I work as an editor. That's why I go and give advice to companies on these things. Um, that's why I, I mentor other other young writers because I think it's vitally important and and and, and aspiring editors because I think it's vitally important that these things are mediated. Because what happens is, if if we're not at the gatekeeper stage then the cliches keep getting perpetuated until they become the truth. Because the thing about cliches is they don't go with the, the alternative, the doubt, or the, the, the things that are against the cliche. Yeah. It, it gets repeated until it becomes fossilized. Yeah. It yeah. becomes a sort of a truth in and of itself. And then people start to live up to it. Yeah. yeah. Which is what happens to a lot of um, kids over here, mixed-race kids, black kids. They try to live up to a stereotype that's been created in the media so that they will fit in. Yeah. And it affects sometimes the mixed race kids more because because they have the other side, they want to prove so much. Yeah, they're overcompensating, yes. they almost feel. No, um, I because the country won't accept them as to mixed be, race. Yeah. They'll only accept them as black, so they have to play it. Yeah. So, I, I remember asking a friend of mine who's mixed race from we were in high school and I was saying why is it that she got actually I think she was pulled over by the police she broke a taillight on her car and then they asked her to clarify her nationality or whatever and she said that she was black mixed or something Mm -hmm. like that and I remember when we got back in the car I asked her why is it that I have no problem with you claiming to be black or being Mm black but why is it that mixed race people have to be forced to be black mm. if they're mixed why can't they be white or if they want to be black or but i've never seen a white uh, a mixed race person refer to themselves as white so i think yeah, yeah. that's quite interesting so ni i don't mean to romanticize your career mm-hmm. um but you used to work for a blue chip organization in a very corporate environment right and now you are what seems to me to be living a very purposeful life i'm sure very busy and demanding but um definitely something that you feel that you had uh something to contribute and what seems to me to also be um something you're very passionate about pursuing and decided to not um be in the corporate rat race like a lot of us and i want to know about the process between what it takes and what you sort of went through between leaving your job and actually aspiring to be um, a creative and a consultant full time because I think I don't know much about what happened Mm. in the middle yeah but for a lot of us there's a huge gap between where we are and all the things that we could be doing right and navigating that space in between a lot of people don't talk about it. They don't talk about what they have gone through. They don't talk about the 
opportunities, things to lever, things that you could consider, then also things that you do need to consider, things that you do need to lever yeah. and all those kind of stuff. So, I mean, as one of the people who have made it to live, <laughs> to live your dream, <laughs> yes, um, you know, please tell the people some things. Well, I mean, the first thing you have to understand is that it comes with a pay cut. Mm for a long time for it could be an eternity um i mean the one thing that was lucky because you know i was raised in a, in a very pragmatic family um the one thing that was lucky is i did not have any kids and i wasn't in a serious relationship and i i i, I can live very frugally mm. so i had some savings and i decided to give myself a year and see what happens and that's what happened. So um, I sent some work over, got some agents interested. I was in Ghana at the time. Um, I helped my cousin set up a graphic design. I was just very flexible. Okay. A graphic design firm in the interim while I was waiting to sort myself out to come over to the UK. And then I came um, with my savings, which I thought would last, you know, quite a, a while, mm-hmm. but didn't. Yeah. Um, savings have a way of doing that. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, you have to adjust the lifestyle as yeah, well, <laughs> and that takes a while to do. Um, so that's what happened. So I came in and I started to go to poetry things. I was still writing, and I realized that you could make more money by doing performances um, and getting paid and, and selling CDs and that kind of thing. But it took a while for that to kick in. Mm. And while that was happening, when I was a student in university, I used to do lots of temp work. So I, I was on really good terms with all the temp agencies that I'd worked for. Okay. Um, because I, I do have a tendency to go into offices and make people laugh. So um, so I went into one of them and I said, listen, this is my deal. Um, I don't want to be working full time, but I need to pay the bills. So yeah. whatever you can find. And so I did lots of different jobs, lifting and shifting, um, various admin jobs occasionally quite responsible jobs mm-hmm. I, and I i worked for the foreign office um for a while i worked for the department of trade and industry i did lots of different things yeah but it was a kind of humility knowing that i was getting to where i needed to get yeah. so the right things were happening in the art in, in my in my world as an artist that assured me that i could carry on because by the time the one year came along i was earning money it just wasn't quite enough yet. Um, and so I carried on doing temp stuff for another year overlap um, while I put myself in place in the right position. Mm. Now, the one thing I will say about the corporate world is that um, if if you're in the right place, it does give you the tools to manage yourself well, to manage your resources, to manage your contacts, to 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 communicate with people in the right way, to set up the right networks. Yeah. And and so that was vitally important. And it meant that um, I achieved quite a few things quicker than other people who were working on the scene as well. Um, so that's the advantage I had. But it, also, I, I had a kind of entrepreneurial drive. So I started doing things. So I started publishing at the same time because I saw other people who I thought were talented, who didn't have books and yeah. stuff like that. I started a magazine. I interviewed some interesting people, you know, met some interesting people as well. So all of these things were helpful yeah. um, in, in many ways. And, um, and I'm actually much prouder of the people I've managed to kind of enable and nurture mm. than myself. You know, I, I see lots of, um, poets and writers who are doing amazing things um Inua Elams who's yeah, got something the barbershop, the, the barbershop chronicles yeah. you know um he did his first reading at an Africa event yeah his very first poetry reading at an event that I was oh, hosting wow. yeah okay. um published his first book um Niall O'Sullivan who's a Irish um poet who's now teaching at London Met um and runs one of the most famous, most established spoken word nights in, in London. I published his first book. He now works with me as an editor. So all of these, thi- these, these things for me are huge. Yeah. So that compensates for the lower pay packet yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I, feel, I feel like the difference it makes in the world is significant. And, and that's hugely satisfying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that these people exist, but I have yet to really meet somebody who kind of, says you know what i'm i'm getting paid enough 
Hmm. I'm so satisfied. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, and then another question I w- wanted to ask, and I'd be interested to find out whether other people listening can relate, but I'm a big fan of music mm-hmm. and I also love a lot of kind of art illustration. I listen to podcasts. I don't really know where to begin when it comes to poetry. Right. I feel like it should be something that I should like. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because of how I've constructed probably a a self-perception of myself Mm -hmm. and the things that I'm into. Um, But with poetry, sometimes it can be, it can feel like quite an abstract thing. Um, Yes. And also you don't really know where to go. The same way as if you wanted to get into music, you wouldn't just type in music in Google. Right. It could be a mix of anything. So the same way I haven't found it helpful if I've typed in poetry mm-hmm. into Google, it really just depends yes. on um, the people, the style, the topics, the maybe the sound, the rhythm, just like music. So it would be great if you could explain... Um, a little bit of what poetry is, kind of poetry basics 101, right? What what it is or what it, it is intended to do, um, to be, where one could go to even explore that interest further. Okay. I mean, poetry is like all forms of writing, a combination of entertainment and, and information. Um, I like to think of it as moments expressed in the language of the poet's experience okay now the 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 problematic part is that after poetry became popular and studied Mm. um people created formula formally for for writing poetry and became very enamored of 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 certain forms and structures which are great um but we have to remember that the poems came before the forms the forms now sometimes supersede the content and that makes it opaque. It makes it difficult for people to get into. Um, This is another reason why I talk about being gatekeepers because there are people, poetry um, has all the qualities required of complexity, of entertainment, of accessibility, because the best poems are accessible as well as complex. Mm. You read them on one level and you go, whoa. And then you read it again. You say, oh my God, because there's something beneath it. Yeah. And that is, um, those are the kind of elements that we look for when, when we're editing. Myself, Jacob Samler-Rose and Niall Sullivan, um, not all editors are the same. I like to think that the poets that we publish are very accessible. You will know, of course, of Wasan Shire, mm. whose work was um, used in Beyonce's Lemonade. Yeah who we publish. Um, and again, when we first published her work, um, people just didn't see the, the, the value because, you know, we, we live in a society where we want celebrity endorsement. Um, thankfully, because her work is so good, by word of mouth, she was already selling really well. You know, we published in 2011. By 2013, she was already selling really well which is partly what brought her to the attention of Beyonce. But since that happened, you see exactly how the the industry works because suddenly people I had given copies to to review the book who had ignored it mm. were writing to ask for for copies to review. And I said, well, it's five years later. You, yeah. you can't have a review copy. So this is the kind of thing that happens. That work that is um, that has um, an accessibility sometimes in the within the industry is looked down on um and there's i mean there's another poet that i edit an 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 english woman actually called charlotte ansel who's incredible i mean you can't read her work without your heart moving and again you know the the people who read it and they think well you know it's not complex enough but actually when you read when you read and read you you just realize there's so many depths to everything Mm. um and then there's Malaika Booker, there's Roger Robinson. There are lots of amazing poets who actually, if there was any justice in the poetry world, would be way bigger than they are. Yeah. But I know that they will get there. It just takes time. Um, and, um, and, and, and I guess that's the world. In terms of people who want to get into poetry, mm-hmm. there are lots of open mics in London and it's usually the best, way to, best place to start because it's about comfort level. Yeah. You know when you go... 
yeah, it's like making friends. Some people you meet and you know you can click, and mm-hmm. some people you meet you don't click. And open mics are the best way to find where is the right fit for you in terms of your poetic growth because you'll meet people um who read stuff that you like and you ask them where they go and they'll tell you and you know and that's the best network yeah so what what google can't um, ever take over that it's true exactly (laughs) um what are some of the best open mic places and gigs that you know not just in london um across the seas as well um well i mean so in ghana there's Mm -hmm. a thing called helakasa Okay. Um, in New York, the New York in Poets Cafe, very well known. Um, in Chicago, the Green Mill, I believe it's called, is the place where slam poetry started. Okay. Um, in London, there's Tuesdays at the Poetry Cafe is Poetry Unplugged. Okay. And um, which is the longest running um, open mic in London. It's a good place to start. Um, and I think there are some, if you, especially for London, New York, um, California, if you Google, they, they have sites that have lists. Oh, right. Okay. So it, it, Google can't tell you the best place for you, mm-hmm. but it, it will tell you the places you can go to, to find okay. out. Yes. Okay. And um, in your own experience as a poet, actually putting creative pieces together, how often is it you having an idea and turning it into something? Or how often does maybe the idea just kind of come to you? It's hard to say. I think, you know, there's there's some ideas that come out of just writing. I mean, one of the things I do is just to play around okay. with words. Um, I'm not the kind of person who necessarily waits for inspiration to come, even though I'm quite lucky and I, I just see things and, and want to write about them, even when I don't know where it's going. Right. It's about trusting that there's something in you know, in you. Do you almost prefer to not know where it's going? Yeah, because I feel like there's an element of poetry writing where we are answering questions about the world that we have. And sometimes in doing that, that's how we connect with with the reader. Um, So yeah. But then there are certain things you want to write about and you can't because you're not ready. I mean, when my father died, I didn't write about it for years. And I mean, I tell you, the place where I, I went to write about it, I would not have wanted it. It mm. was like um, a house party. I was in university in Manchester. <laughs> okay. It was one of those house parties. They were playing some good rap, dancing <laughs> against the wall. And I felt this thing. Wow. Like, I have to write. Okay. And I mean, I almost hated myself because I was dancing with a very beautiful woman. I was just about to say, and I, I can't ha- imagine me like, sorry, would you just hold on a second? I have to write something yeah. down. Well, that's not what I said. I just said, excuse me, because I could feel the, feel the tears coming. Yeah. And so then five minutes later, people see me on the staircase. I'm crying and I'm writing. And they're like, is the party so bad? Well, I mean, that's not what they asked, but like, that, <laughs> no, what's, what's going so on? Good. Yeah. The party just, is so good. Yeah. And that's what, you know, so yeah. there is that thing of you have to be ready to write what you need to write about. Yeah. But there's, it's also very important to practice, so just to write about things. I mean, when I, when I was in secondary school, I used to write love letters for people, mm-hmm. and there was no pressure because it wasn't my heart, <laughs> you know? You used to write love letters for, for people. people, yes. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, on contract. That's a good business. Yes, yeah. I actually made a lot <laughs> more money then. Um, and that was easier because it wasn't my heart. Right. But out of that... I developed the practice of just being able to write just because I have to write. Yeah. And I keep that up because I love playing with words. I mm. love playing with language. I love the fact that I grew up in a place where I had to speak three languages to play football with the boys. Um, in, and then you add on pidgin English and then the English you had to speak in school. So there's a music in language that I love and I love to play around mm. with that. And that's why I'm never going to be sitting around thinking oh i wish i was making more money because i genuinely enjoy waking up in the morning and putting a a pen to paper because i still write longhand Mm. um and just creating when was the time that you maybe if not woke up but you were just in the moment and you thought i'm living a purpose-driven life like I'm, i'm doing what i'm meant to be doing this is what this is what I was made to do. This is where I should be. And I mean, I think for most people, the goalpost continues mm. to move in it life. It shifts, you yeah. Know? But when you, 
at that moment when you thought, looking back on your career where you've come from, all those temping jobs, mm. doing this and that, and you thought, it was all for this, it was all for this moment, and I feel... Have you had that feeling? Um, I think I had that feeling <laughs> when I left the job. Right. Because I had a goal in focus. Okay. Um, but I have had moments of relief along the way, you mm. know, because, you know, I've, you know I've, I've got kids now. So the fact that I haven't had to go back to a nine to five to afford my kids yeah. is validation. Um, it's huge validation. Mm. The fact that in this process, I have been able to give a start to over 100 writers and artists and whatever. Um, I've toured all over the world. I mean, um, I've walked into classrooms where a kid has said, you know, I've never seen a, a black man, you know, in in front of me, you know, wow. kind of thing. Mm. That I've been to Libya after the fall of Gaddafi and met black Libyans who are just so validated by the fact that there's somebody who's come to their country who is a recognized writer and they've never seen any person like that before. Wow. Okay. You, I mean, those are things that you can't put a value on. Yeah. And, and so those moments continually reinforce. But I think you're right. You know, there is an element of being an artist which is about being comfortable with who you are or being comfortable even with the not knowing who you are. Mm -hmm. It's about being comfortable in every process that you're going through. In your journey. In your journey. And that's probably the greatest gift that I've got from leaving the corporate world because what being an artist does is it gives you time for reflection. And I'm able to reflect. Mm. And, and that means that I know my faults and I know what I'm working on and I, I, I know the, the ones I'm struggling with, but I'm okay with it. And one of the things I've learned as well, I mean, in, in the last five years is how to forgive myself. Um, because I think a lot of us, we actually make our lives harder by not forgiving ourselves when we've made the mistake already. I mean, we're human. You've made the mistake. You need to forgive yourself and, and move on. I couldn't agree and more. And if you can't do that, life is so hard. Mm. It's like walking through mud Absolutely. all the time. Um, you need to forgive yourself. I, I was flawed and be able to admit it. I, you know, when I make mistakes, I say to people, I did this. It was messed up. I've moved on. And that's it. And I think that links very perfectly to what you said about when you left your work, you were able to have that time to reflect so that you were able to have that internal dialogue. Yes. And in having that internal dialogue, you got to know yourself a little bit better and therefore be able to more, um, I suppose, boldly confront your positives and your negative attributes. Yeah. But I think in this world that we live in and when society is moving so fast and you know particularly for me sometimes I feel like as soon as I go to bed I'm waking up and as soon right. as I wake up I don't think oh you know what a lovely day or I'm alive and I'm in good health I'm just like shit what time it what yes, time is it yes, I yes, to yes. Uh, do I, I have enough time to make a cup of coffee yes <laughs> understand no. yes. okay you know so and then you don't get to have that reflection and through that and through living a life like that over, you know, years, especially at, you know, an age where I'm still young and I'm robust, um, I realized, I think it was probably, was it this year or sometime last year, but I took time to evaluate my internal dialogue and I realized that I don't speak well or politely to myself right and i had never realized that before because i'm a and polite that's, person that's i speak important. to people yeah. respectfully politely and i care about people's feelings mm -hmm. and i'm so aware of how i say not not only getting my point across but i'm very much aware of the energy that i'm going to get back post right. putting my yes. point across and then i realized because i don't think about the I, I hadn't thought about the fact that even i give out energy based on how i Speak, speak and the words that I use internally so I became very aware of that and I think I was saying it to my mother and I said you know I realized that I speak worse to myself than I do to <laughs> anybody else you know like right. and and going back to your point about being unforgiving yes. to yourself and I think that I completely agree it can be a silent killer in terms of um the friction that it creates that disables us to move a lot faster and smoother in life than, you know, we yeah. could be. Yeah. 
It's 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 so important, and you're right. You know, it's it's the the grind stops us from reflecting. And actually, the other thing that that does is it doesn't allow us to settle our lessons because you learn lots of things just by being alive and encountering people. But for it to really reflect in your life, mm. you have to have that silence for it to crystallize. Yeah. And we very rarely get that. And so what tends to happen is sometimes because of those things we've learned subconsciously and not really consciously crystallized, we change and we don't realize we've changed, but then suddenly we're not getting along with someone. Mm. And it's because we've changed and we haven't realized we're changing and we haven't made the adjustments. And so suddenly there's this thing and you don't understand it. And you've, this is what, when people say they've grown apart, that's it. It's like, that is what this can do, yeah. you know? Um, and, and that is why, you know, the, the friends that remain, the best ones are the ones where you have no pressure on it. They don't expect you to be any kind of way. They're just happy to be with you. And that way, even when you've changed, it's just, hey, you're here. Yeah. I'm here. Yeah. Let's talk. Absolutely. Um, and all of my best friends that's the way it is with them. Mm. I don't have expectations of them. I'm just happy to see them. Mm. And some of them I, I know are incredibly flawed. I mean, like, I have friends I would never go to a dinner party with. Yeah. <laughs> but they're have, my we friends. We have those friends. Yeah. But they're <laughs> and my maybe we are that person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But they're my friends, you know, and I yeah. love them dearly. And Absolutely. I will take the time and spend the time with them. Yeah. But I know where I won't take them. Yeah. And, and so... It's that thing. I, I can't try and say, I need you to be a dinner party friend. Yeah. No, that's just going to fracture what we have. Mm. Um, and, and so it's, it's that thing of understanding where you are in relation to, to everyone. Yeah, um, to the rest of the world. Yeah. I think, I, 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 I think so. I, I, but I think for you, in order to do that, you have to uh, slay a huger kind of monster or dragon, which is are you comfortable with who you are if yes. you extrapolate what people exactly. think of you? You know, and I think that's exactly that's probably a, a life lesson for another podcast entirely. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a big one. That is a big one. Um, so what's in store for you, I suppose, for the rest of the year and even onwards? So I'm, I'm going back to Ghana in um, just a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and in September, I start teaching at a new creative writing center that I've I've helped launch in, oh, wow. in Ghana. Okay, what's it called? The Ama Atta Edu Center for Creative Writing. The Ama Atu. Atta. Amu, the, Ama. The Ama Atta Edu. The Ama Atta Edu. Center okay, for Creative Writing. The Ama Atta Edu Center for Creative Writing. Yes. Okay. And for short, we call it the Edu Center. Okay, you could have just said that though. Well, hey, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've got to say what it's for. <laughs> Um, so I'll start teaching there in September. And, but while I'm there, you know, there are lots of interesting creative things going on in Ghana. I'm really interested. You know, you were talking about how um, you have um, sort of modified the way in which you communicate with the world, this podcast being one of the ways. Um, and in the same way, as a storyteller, I'm really interested in, in, in radio, in, in television, in, in, um, in the web, in, in, in all its forms, mm-hmm. audio, video. So those are some of the things I'll be exploring with some of the younger creatives in, in Ghana. Yeah. I, I'm also really interested, maybe because I'm growing old, in archiving. Mm. So um, I've been talking to um, a few actresses and, 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 and creatives about cre- um, making a theater archive for some of the older plays that were written in Ghana. So oh. recently... I was at the Kane um, Prize um, Prize dinner, and I was speaking to Adra Ando um, from Casualty and so many other projects um, about it, and she sounded really excited about it. So I'm really looking forward to being able to do that. Wow! Which is yeah, because what you find is, unfortunately, when our, you know our, our writers start out, and people say, "Who are your?" heroes or who are the models or who are the people who've shown you what's possible sometimes they can't even remember that we've had them yeah already yes yeah and so for me that's vitally important because it's been a really important part of my career over here that when i'm on panels and people ask me i always reflect back Mm. to the continent to show these are the people who show me what's possible yes these are people i admire in latin america who also showed me what's possible or in the indian continent or in europe but there's always, from our own continent, f- from our own background, f- 
that have a place yeah. in, in, in what was my foundation. Yeah. And, and that allows you to have different conversations or even a different position um, when you're on panels because actually when you mention those people, the people running the panels are no longer experts. Mm. So they have to defer to you mm. because what tends to happen is if you just say, oh, it's Shakespeare and it's um, William Golden and you know you, you use the, these European references, what happens is the people on the panels, they've been studying that all their lives. Yeah. You've come from somewhere else and you're saying those are your models. They're going to constantly be questioning you. And it also means that you, you're always having to validate yourself against something yeah. that yeah. is... That people feel needs proving? Yeah. 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 Um, and so the theater archive is, is, is one of those ideas. I really, really I think feel it's important. I think that's really key. And, um, you know, as you know, we record at the Africa Center. And prior to starting this podcast, I was having a conversation with... Um, one of the senior managers here and talking about archiving and kind of their their interest in in having something like this at the center came from i think they had a request about jazz in right. london back in the 70s and everybody was part of it and everyone was part of the movement at that time um you know yeah friends and family that's still part of the Africa Center. But it was like, where are those images? Where are those photos? Yes. Where are the videos? Where, like, it's it pretty much could just all be in your head. And um, similarly, as, similarly to as you mentioned about not expecting to learn about the context of Africa's, um, parts of Africa's poverty and things like that, because they're not told in schools the way they should be told. Um so much of our history is really missing. Yeah. Um, and there was a there was a part and point in history where it was very difficult for us to have a defining say on what's going on because yes. of everything because we were trying to survive. Yes. Um, but now we have we are post survival stage. Um, well, certainly in terms of like physical survival and you know whatever, mm. but. You know, I really wanted to have some kind of responsibility to archiving and keeping something that will tell me in 20, 30, 50 years time, what were we thinking? Right. You know, yeah. what, what were we, what were our values? Yes. Because if you can imagine our parents sitting down and having this conversation, the things that they would say that they believe are right and wrong in society and the things that they imagine themselves doing are going to be so different to what they end up being doing because the world changes in ways that we don't expect. Yes. Our values change in ways that we don't expect either. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you completely forget what you can't remember. And if you, if you don't have a strong re uh, recollection, it's so easy for people to tell you what happened. Absolutely. And to, um, for them to curate your memory for you. Yeah. And I think that's a very dangerous place for us to be in yeah and some of these memories or archives can actually be very freeing yeah you know i i remember i mean my father as i said my father died quite early and one of the things that came out of that is i would have these long conversations with my mother and talk about dreams and stuff like that and it was very freeing for me to find one day that actually she dreamt of owning a club mm. like where people would dance because my mother loves dancing and so, yes, she had the whole responsible thing. She was a nurse, midwife, all of that stuff. But her dream was to own a club. Now, when you think that for a generation where parents are so strict and telling their kids to go and do law and, yeah. and medicine and stuff, she wanted to own a club, then you think, well, the fact that I'm an artist is no big deal to her. Yeah. And, you know, actually that has turned out to be the fact because she's been the person who's had to defend me. Not the, I mean, I don't need defending, but, yeah. you know, her friends will say, why is your son... Help doing... justify your decisions yeah, to other people. Yeah, yeah, doing this now, you know, and yeah. she'll just say that's what he wants to do. Yeah. And um, whereas, you know, some other parents would say, well, you know, you know these kids, yeah. <laughs> you know, but she will always say that's what he wants to do. But if you had not known that about your mum, and more so if your mum didn't know that you knew, yeah, she may not have said that and could have 
easily also have just told you to and, and given you the maybe the impression that you should have gone and done law or this and that and the other maybe if she perhaps know perhaps you. perhaps but but i think when people have a free spirit it tends to manifest yeah. but yes but it's good to know yes i mean that's the thing about it it, it was so free and because of course you do question yourself when mm-hmm. you i mean the fact that I was in a place where I had a certain earning capacity and the importance that people place on money in this world. There are moments when you question it, but I mean, thankfully for me, those moments haven't been very many. Mm. Um, And so that's, you know, I think the best thing about it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's about knowing that even in our pasts, you know, the things that people say about hair and men's hair, Mm. you know, this um, attachment in the corporate world to men's hair being short, etc. Now, cut the cutting of hair short is linked to when the Europeans came wanting, being threatened, feeling threatened when people had long hair and asking for it to be cut short. Mm-hmm. So it's strange that it's become the norm, the norm. in our workplaces. I didn't that, know that. Yeah, because when you look at even the Ghanaian Edinkra symbols, there's one called Jewu Etiko. And it's, I have them, I think. Uh, yeah, I've seen. Of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that symbol is based on the hairstyle of a warrior. Now, it is so elaborate. The only way he could have had that hairstyle was if it was locked and styled. Yeah. And the, for the fact that a famous warrior had that hairstyle tells you that a lot of people yeah. had that hairstyle. Yeah. I mean, in you know, with, with the, the traditional leaders some of them still have those hairstyles but that's where it comes from yeah you know um and and then suddenly all the people who were working to become clerks for the british you know they had to shave their hair almost Mm -hmm. like they were in the military and stuff like that and that became the norm you know you want to be yeah and so now we are reclaiming our hair but we've it's been such a battle because we didn't have the context to say hey this is this is how it was to stand on yeah and i think some of those things you know you feel them yeah but you don't know that your feelings are valid yes and i think yeah sometimes you need that passport yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah. absolutely okay so besides the um the center in ghana yes what else are you up to um so i just finished uh, a novel so that's with my agent and that's I don't know when that's going to come out. But Do you have a title for the It's novel? called Azúcar. Azúcar? Which is sugar in Spanish. Okay. Um, I set it on a Spanish-speaking island in the Caribbean, which oh, doesn't exist. Um, okay. And it's, it's a love story, really. Um, so it's a lot softer than my first novel. Oh, that'd be nice. In that Nancy, sense. you are speaking to earlier. Uh, we were talking about the fact that we would love to read more love stories. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's, it's, it's complex in its own way. It's a story about belonging. So... Mm. Yes, it's a love story, but it's also about how someone comes to belong to a place, mm. how someone comes to be known as of this place. Um, okay, and so that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's it it was really interesting to write, and and as I said, most of my writing is also seeking to answer questions. Yeah, and that's probably come about because I have kids who were born here. Um, I'm from Ghana. I was born here, but mm. I grew up completely in Ghana. Um, their mother was born here, but she's also not of here. Mm. Um, um, and, and, and growing up, you know, they've grown up a bit in Ghana. They're growing up here. Um, so what does that mean for yeah. them? And, and also, um, because I separated from their mother, I'm not in their lives as much. Mm. So all these notions of belonging, I suppose we're playing yeah. in my mind yeah. and, and I, I think I've, ans- I've sought to answer them through the book. Okay. And it was a great joy to write because um, you realize, I mean, it's, it's the way you say you go to Uganda, you don't feel Ugandan, and you come here, you don't feel English or British. Um, and, and one of the things underlying those feelings is the fact that we develop an essentialized sense of what it means to be Ugandan or British. Yeah. But actually, it's a sliding scale. Um, and so... Mm. even in your not being feeling Ugandan, you're always going to be more Ugandan than somebody who's British. So if you took somebody to Uganda, they'd be more lost than you are. Mm. And therefore you are more Ugandan. You're Ugandan enough. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I, I mean? I am the best among the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Something like that. But, 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 but it's also, 
giving yourself permission to be that. Yeah. Because you don't have to be like the woman selling something on the streets or the woman working in the office who they've just changed the laws. They can't wear miniskirts anymore. Yeah. You don't have to be like her. Well, I think, (laughs) and I I think that we, I completely am aware that I am also playing into a notion that is very subjective. Yes. Because as much as we, uh, particularly in London and in the UK and in the diaspora, we, um, you know, we clench our fists and we talk about back home even when we are back home, the people that we look at as being like, you know, really legit, they're, they're conk from, they're from there. They are also, they also feel validated when, you know, they're wearing Western clothing or they have an iPhone or they have some kind of affiliation to the Western world. So I agree. The scale is always, we're all hybrids and you know, people take what works for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's true that you'll always have people trying to manage your identity yeah. <laughs> and it's for us to own it. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, um, there are ways of being um, Ghanaian, there are ways of being a Ghanaian who's been outside, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, there are lots of my friends who buy into this whole thing of because I've been outside when I go, I'm going to tip in this way or I'm, I'm going to travel this way. Um, and that's them. Mm. When I go, it's a whole different thing, you know. Um, and so different demands are made of me because of how I own my identity over there. Mm. Um, and if you own a certain identity that's also constructed of the guy who's gone and come back, then different demands will be made of you. Yeah. Um, and so it's a two-way thing. You know, it's, it's how you, you decide to play, you know, your role as constructed or not. Um, yeah. Because society can only ask of you what you will give ultimately. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. That's very true. And I think that really does um, strike a chord in terms of there's always somebody trying to construct your identity. Always. Yeah. Always. <laughs> so, um, Ni, what are your words to live by? You know, words that you keep very close to your chest and that you you live by. Hmm. I don't think there's a particular phrase, you know. Um, but you know what I said about forgiving yourself is is has become a very important guiding light mm. in 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 um, in my life. And something that my father used to say to us, I think, is also has also played a huge part in my feeling free to be who I am. Mm. He just used to say. As long as you're doing your best, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. I'm happy with you. And regardless of what you do, I'm always going to love you. And knowing that there is a place in the world that regardless of what you do, you will have love is the best insurance policy. I mean, he may not be on the earth anymore, but just that idea Mm. alone is enough for me. And it's the same thing I communicate to my kids. Mm. And it's the same thing I communicate to my writers. You know, when we publish them, sometimes they'll get offers from other places to let's publish you. And they'll say, are you going to be mad at me? I'm like, no, Mm. you're growing. If this is good for you, then go. Yeah. You know, so I think letting go is, 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 I mean, because letting go covers all of that. Mm. You know, you let the ones you love go and do what they want and love them anyway. Um, you let your mistakes go and keep moving. You let people that you've nurtured go and find their way. You let yourself go and find new experiences because I think that's really important. We renew ourselves by new experiences, yeah. you know, and sometimes we forget to do that. We will start going to the restaurant we've always gone to. Yeah. And because it's convenient, they know what we want to order when we walk in. Yes, there's, there's a part of life where convenience is sweet. Yeah. But there's also a sweetness that comes from flying by the seat of your pants, you know. Yeah, um, love traveling. I love traveling to places where I don't speak the language. Yeah. Because I feel there's something human about really listening, mm-hmm. trying to understand someone where the abstract of language is gone. But still being able to connect and get and things done. And having to try. Yeah. To actually have to try. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's meeting new people or being in a new place or kind of, I, th- I think that we live in a very, 
We live in a world where things are made to make us feel as comfortable as possible. Yes. But at the same time, we are humans and we are built to explore and built to be challenged and built to fight for survival and built to not just have these different emotions, but really feel them in peaks and troughs. Yes. So I think definitely when we put ourselves into into places that kind of ignite that yes. thing in us, yeah. I think yeah. that's a good place to be. And I think it makes us feel alive. But thank you so much, Neve. Thanks for having for coming. me. It's been an absolute pleasure to finally get to talk to you and speak to you. <laughs> and I've been wanting to um, talk to you for a while now. I was prepared to... <laughs> interview you at Heathrow <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting you know you'd have had much more fun coming to Ghana to do it but there you go <laughs> yeah but yeah. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on so thank yes. you so much thank you <laughs>